Hello, my name is Chris Kearney, and this is my podcast series entitled The Pensive Biologist. I'm a research biologist at work and an avid gardener and hiker in my spare time, so biology is the lens through which I interpret the world. Through that lens, I see many things in nature that are wonderful and beautiful, but I also see things that are, frankly, frightening and disturbing. So in this podcast series, I plan to work through these difficult subjects for myself and for anyone else who wants to come along for the ride. I've divided the series into modules, with several podcasts per module. The first module is simply entitled, Death. My lab research is centered on pathogenic viruses and bacteria. Death is something I focus on every day. This first podcast examines the curious fact that in order for an organism to live, another organism must die. In other words, among the happy family of living creatures on this earth, everybody eats somebody else. The only exceptions are the autotrophs, such as plants, but I have some victim stories to tell about plants that I hope you'll find interesting. So, here we go. Death is woven deeply into life. We try not to think about it, but we've had reminders of this reality, starting even at a young age. For example, in our textbooks, we've read about the cycle of life since elementary school. Nutrients flow from one group of organisms to another. In the typical cycle, there are arrows that connect a green pasture to a carefree antelope to a sleepy, contented mountain lion. And then there is an arrow that points back into the soil to complete the cycle. But what exactly happens to that antelope, for example, when it moves along the arrow that points to the mountain lion? What lies at the end of the arrow for the antelope? As for me, I want to keep my personal corporeal body away from those arrows as long as I possibly can. There are always those unsavory details in the cycle of life that the teacher skips in elementary school, quickly moving on to talk about phosphates before the kids think too hard about the diagram. What's really happening here is that everybody is killing and eating everybody else in the diagram. With this in mind, let's take a fresh look at the cycle of life especially those pesky arrows. We'll start with the good guys. These guys are the exception. They don't eat other organisms. Instead, they derive their substance from CO2 and their energy from chemicals or sunlight. Such organisms are called chemoautotrophs. They use the chemicals, chemo, as food, troph, to feed themselves, auto. Plants are chemoautotrophs that use light energy via photosynthesis, to convert CO2 to sugars and other carbon sources. There are also algae and bacteria that are chemoautotrophs, with some using light to provide energy and others using minerals. Then there is the other group. These organisms must either kill another organism or eat the remains of a killed organism. These are called heterotrophs. They get their food troph, from others, hetero. These include predators, which kill animals, herbivores, which kill plants, filter feeders, which kill microbes, and decomposers, which eat the remains of killed organisms. Guess which of these two fundamental groups we fall in? We're not the chemoautotrophs. We're the killers. 
We humans are heterotrophs. We are completely, totally dependent on death. We simply can't live without death. So, let's now move on to the fascinating world of killers. We'll start with animals that kill other animals. We are fascinated by predators, and we count ourselves lucky to see one of these killers in action in real life. These are the most elegant and graceful of animals, but they are, at their essence, efficient killing machines. Falcons, for example, live off their speed, maneuverability, and tactics to feed on other birds. They can take down songbirds, jays, ducks, and even other smaller falcons. They use either high-speed power dives from above to hit the unsuspecting bird with their talons, resulting in a sudden explosion of prey feathers and a tasty meal. Or they may come from the side and ambush a bird. Owls are another elegant example. Barn owls can locate rodent prey using only their hearing and specifically modified wings and feathers that allow them to fly in nearly complete silence, suddenly pouncing on a very surprised mouse. With a different tactic, scarlet tanagers and blue jays use pure boldness to catch a special treat. They will fly in and destroy paper wasp colonies, quickly snapping up the adults and then gorging themselves on a paper nest full of tasty larvae. Why are we thrilled to be a rare human witness to events like this in real life? The snatching of a bird, the snatching of a mouse or of a wasp by a supremely adapted predator. Why do we then go on to tell the story to other people? We tell the story because of the elegance, the speed, the cunning, and the outlandish boldness. But when we tell it, we often leave out the dark side of the event, the death of the prey. We don't think about the prey in the story because we completely ignore death as part of normal life. Death is stitched into life. It is unavoidable, but we actively hide from it. We grew up listening to movies and children's videos, hearing fine stories meant by the scriptwriters to teach us, little children, about life. These cartoon fantasies sometimes touched on death but only obliquely. I guess we were supposed to be comforted by these stories as children, but by the time we reached adulthood, we no longer talked or even thought about death. But there are so many real stories to tell about death. One example is a topic that is rarely considered in our daily thoughts, the death of plants. But as I tell these stories, you probably won't even feel any sadness. It's interesting to ask ourselves, why we feel no sadness. So, here's the first story. Pipevine caterpillars feed on pipevines, Erstilochia serpentaria, to gain the defensive plant chemicals that make the caterpillars themselves noxious to the birds that prey upon them. The pipevines are not happy about this situation and have evolved to have many different leaf patterns, even within the same species to avoid being identified by the pipevine swallowtail butterflies that lay their eggs on these plants. It's a continual tussle between the vines and the caterpillars. The caterpillars devastate the pipevines, but the plants manage to survive by having large tubers, enabling them to grow their leaves back after each feeding event. And we're just fine with that story. These plants have evolved a means of coming back 
from near-complete destruction. Devastation just happens to plants. Of course. Right? The second story involves forage grasses. Grasses have adapted to large-hoofed herbivores like bison, deer, and cows. By hiding their meristems, that is, the cells that originate new growth, at the very base of the leaves, very close to the soil. In this way, grasses can be mowed down to the ground by deer or cattle and still grow back. Other herbs, think zinnias or geraniums, have their meristems at the end of the above-ground shoots. These plants are quickly killed by hungry deer or cattle, as people who live in rural areas know very well. If you put a geranium on the back stoop, the next day you'll see just a stub in a pot and a pile of deer pellets right next to it. Zinnias and geraniums have the strategy of growing fast, making lots of seeds, and placing their hopes on the next generation. The grass strategy is to let the leaves be eaten and then grow back from the basal meristems. But ask the question, aren't plants living too? Why are we okay with a plant being killed, eaten down to the root, by a cow or deer? Why do we make categories of life and say that because the plant lacks a nervous system and doesn't sense pain, that the destruction of the plant is okay? Pain is simply a sensation evolved in animals to avoid injury. So it's not the pain that's the problem, it's the injury. The injury, however, is still there for the plants, even if they don't have pain. They can grow back their body parts unlike animals, but the injury, the tragedy, is still there, whether we acknowledge it or not. The great majority of plants do not eat other creatures. They do not kill. Why should we kill these relatively innocent creatures or cut off their living leaves? To see how far away we are from even being able to address these rather straightforward questions, let's try this. Why are we okay with mowing the lawn? I don't view these questions as moral questions that demand some sort of action or repentance on our part. Let's never mow the lawn again. Instead, I view these as diagnostic questions, revealing a more fundamental concept. I think the only answer to these sorts of questions is this. We accept death and devastation in plants because we know that death and devastation are woven so inextricably into life. It's just the way it is, and we try not to think about it. This is the foundational reason why we treat these sorts of questions about the death of plants as irrelevant. Death is one of the most important things never discussed in daily life. In popular documentaries or videos, when something scary like death is examined, the narrator often finishes up with the suggestion that, now that we've gotten the subject of death out in the open, well, we have no longer need to fear it. We've looked at it, we've said a few platitudes, so now it's not something to worry about. That, of course, makes no sense at all. In the subsequent podcasts of this module, we'll look at death from several different biological perspectives. The central message that keeps popping up is that death is woven into life deeply. 
I don't find this comforting. Instead, it drives me to find an escape from my own impending death. I would dream of a life untainted by death. In fact, I plan to devote an entire module to the topic of escape. It turns out that escape is also a central facet in biology, on several levels. The urge to escape is hardwired into us. If God were to have some sort of mission for us, if we were to have some purpose on earth, I would think that things would be set up to make that mission possible. Some sort of context would be present. Behavioral paths would be hardwired into us genetically so that decisions that we are called to make would be understandable to us. A finite lifespan would force us to ask deep questions. So I seek knowledge about death, not to be morbid or scandalous. I just want to know the lay of the land. Thank you.